Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. You got me now? All right. Hey, there we go. What's going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here. Drancer, of course, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. I'm trying to race through it. We got a lot to get to, Drancer. We do. It's a loaded show. but I Big think, show. And I'm going to digress because this is what I do. I think you got me is a good sign on for you. <laughs> I think you should consider that. <laughs> You got me? Welcome to Canucks Hour. Let's go. Uh, we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, <laughs> Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650, the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, debacle in Seattle last night. We'll get into that. But the big news breaking this morning, Andre Kuzmenko officially has signed a two-year, $5.5 million per season extension with the Canucks. The pending UFA, not going anywhere, he's sticking around, and by the way, his agent Dan Milstein will join us uh, in just over five minutes, so we'll get his perspective on the deal. We heard about it yesterday, Drance. Must listen, by Potential. the way, Dan Milstein he's is great. amazing. He's great radio. His, uh, he's also great a great Twitter follow. Yes. I've loved his tweets. Like I'm a big Dan Milstein fan. Now we know exactly how much was in those money bags he photoshopped around, or somebody photoshopped around Andre Kuzmenko <laughs> the other day. Was that the best agent photoshop since Mark andre Fleury got, <laughs> got stabbed? Do they have like seminars for <laughs> hockey agents? <laughs> Here's how to photoshop what's happening to your client. Uh, so we heard about it, and look, there's there's a, there's some anticipation for an epic rant from you in the inbox, and I've seen I, it on Twitter, I don't even know but if I feel I like we've already done it. I don't even know if I have it in You've me. already done it, right? Like, If you're waiting for signs that this team understands their plight and has a plan to get out of it, you're going to be waiting a long time, right? This, this is a fair deal for a good player. It's just completely inconsistent with what this team needs, and that's... You know, congratulations, first of all, to Andre Kuzmenko. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. He's come over on a one-year show-me entry-level contract. He picked this situation. They nailed it. He has adapted phenomenally well to the NHL. He's, you know, been an elite point producer. I love him at the net front on the power play, and he's fun to watch. Fans have resonated with the bubbly personality, with the loud offensive toolkit. But... He's 27, or he's going to be 27 in days. Yeah, next week. Next week. And, you know, he's shooting 25% personally. His on-ice percentages are massively inflated. There is significant regression risk. And yet, you know, one thing about, like, the buy high on your own guy, the butter your own bread thing is, if you're the Canucks, you don't have any other choice. Like, you needed to do a deal in the next month, right? You, could, could you wait seven, eight, nine games? Because you've also got the All-Star break in there. Mm-hmm. And then make a decision. I mean, what, what's it matter? Like, no matter what, you're making a decision on a player who's going to have played, like, far fewer than 1,000 five-on-five minutes in the, at the NHL level. So variance was always going to be a complicated risk factor to navigate in coming to evaluation of Kuzmenko for his second contract. And, you know, 5-5 five, five times 2, um, I mean, like, we can talk about it, and I'm definitely going to ask Dan Milstein if he knows who Timofey Mozgov is. <laughs> but... But the main thing here is, you know, a 
a two-year deal limits the risk to the Canucks, but limits the upside. I saw you point that yep. out on Twitter because if Kuzmenko is this guy who's going to convert on one of every five shots he takes, well, okay, yeah, like, produce just, like this. Th- so it's not a crushing deal in the sense that it's like, oh my goodness, they're going to have this anchor around their head because yeah, yeah. it's only two years. And it, and it, by the age of thirty-three, what's it going to look yeah, like? No, you sign it. You sign a good player to a two-year deal, and inherently the risk is very, very low. But then. The flip side of it is walk well, through the best case scenario. But the usual, like one thing, one thing that I think this team is struggling with, right, is like where they don't perceive, or where they perceive ambiguity and uncertainty. I think it makes the organization deeply uncomfortable, right? So it's like there's nothing guaranteed about losing. You know, you don't necessarily get Bedard, right? There's nothing guaranteed about a late first round pick. You don't necessarily get right. When where ambiguity is perceived, it's like the organization's exceedingly, extremely, like paralyzed in terms of their risk assessment. But where ambiguity still exists and is more subtle, like Andre Kuzmenko right now is an elite five on five point producer who's also crushing it at the net front on the power play. But there is a non-zero risk that this is the best level of production that he ever manages in the NHL, right? It's not like the team is lighting it up when he's away from Elias Pettersson. It's not like he's not shooting 25% when he's on the ice. It's not like his individual point percentage is is likely inflated. And his on-ice shooting percentage. I mean, there's so much going on that causes Kuzmenko's numbers to be, you know, eye-popping in a way that might absolutely not be sustainable. And history dictates that players that produce like this with this sort of profile tend to regress. Tend to regress and sometimes significantly. So... You know, there is ambiguity and uncertainty and like Kuzmenko's not just like who he is, right? Kuzmenko is who he feels like to you right now, which is the star player who's got this great chemistry with Elias Pettersson. But, you know, in doing this deal, the Canucks are now going to have to make really hard choices on a guy like Connor Garland, who's a perfect example of how value can change, particularly for wingers in this league. He led this team, Garland did, by five on five scoring right a year ago. One last season. In his first season as, as a Canucks player, he was the most efficient five-on-five rate scorer for this team. And now people are, you know, within the industry wondering about a buyout, right? Like value changes quickly, particularly when the reason that explains the, the variance, the change, is percentages, right? The, the, the most subject to the whims, the cruel whims of the hockey gods of, of any factor in hockey. Um, so... That's just that's just sort of an example here. There's uncertainty and risk that they're taking on that Kuzmenko is more like a middle six contributor and a good one, as a po- in which case, you know, it, it's not like a huge overpay, even if that's what you're getting, versus, you know, a, a top-line contributor the way he's been this season where his, you know, market value is probably like seven and a half and they're going to get surplus value. And anyway, we're, we're talking about the contract in the way we usually talk about contracts and that's all fair and good, but the fact is is that the the deal itself is besides the point like I have no problem with the contract I like the player the problem is where the team is at it's well, the context and it, it's it, the circumstance again it's like what's the best case scenario from the Canucks perspective on this deal right it's I guess that Andre Kuzmenko continues at this level of performance and they get surplus value out of it oh, but powers them to the inevitable five game series <laughs> lost in but, the first round next year but like okay and then you're in this position where now he has a three-year track record and he's 29 and you're going to be paralyzed with fear from losing him and the cap is going up and he's poised to cash in well, and now you're signing him deep into his 30s potentially so that's the that's the limited upside that they've captured with this contract. And, th- and that's fair, but to me, 
that's not even a concern. Like people often say this when I when I advocate for the long bridge deals, which I do dogmatically, right? Like I don't I, I think the long you, second deals. Yeah, I think yeah. you shoe bridge deals and do the long term second contracts, especially for top end players. And people are like, well, then you have to make a tough decision at twenty nine. It's like, or or you don't, or you don't. You know, like what what's so wrong with mining a player's prime years and letting them go their way unless they're you know a, a player of historic importance to your franchise or or this like indispensable pet Patrice Bergeron culture guy. So. You know, anyway, the thing is, is Kuzmenko's a great player. This contract makes a ton of sense for both sides. I'm really curious to hear from Dan Milstein about it. And yet, I just sort of can't escape the fundamental analysis that the opportunity cost incurred by committing $5.5 million of your cap space for two years in which you're going to be climbing uphill to even make the playoffs anyway, Right. And losing out on the opportunity to, to to mine some really premium futures from a potential Kuzmenko deal, like there's almost no level that Kuzmenko, Kuzmenko could score seventy goals over the life of this deal, and I think the opportunity, like he'd still struggle to provide more value than the opportunity cost incurred by the team. Now joining us, hopefully on... not listening to my analysis, Dan Milstein. <laughs> now joining us on the line, he is Andre Kuzmenko's agent, the CEO of Gold Star Hockey. He is Dan Milstein. Dan, thanks very much for making time for us. First of all, congratulations to you. Congratulations to your client, Andre Kuzmenko. How did this deal come together over the last little while? Hey, I heard you. You're, I thought you guys were going to be all hostile based on what I just heard on the radio. Never, uh, so never with you, Dan. I, I, don't, I don't know if I should be accepting any congratulations from y'all, but okay. <laughs> hey, we got to be fair. We got to be fair. We're still big fans of Kuzmenko. We're just not sure about what this team is doing. Or hey, let me let me actually pick at that over the over the course of. Kuzmenko's recruitment to Vancouver in the summer and in the wake of contract talks over the course of the past month, Dan, what was the plan explained to Andre? What about it appealed to him in terms of remaining with the Vancouver Canucks on his second NHL contract? Uh, fresh sushi. Um, <laughs> 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 well, cer- hey, cer- certainly this wasn't about uh, the low income tax. And or ability <laughs> to own as a foreign <laughs> ability national. To buy a home because, <laughs> because remember, yeah, but the new laws that passed, not only they want twenty five percent tax on top of it for a, for anybody foreign, including the U.S. citizens, but also there's a two year ban. So a guy yeah, like uh, uh, Ilya Mikheyev and Andrei Kuzmenko should be, you know, homeless or renting or something like that. So, uh, but no, you know, in all honesty, um, Andrei could have signed virtually with any club. We've had uh, over the last. Uh, Seven years or so, we've spoken to virtually all the clubs. We took the list down to about six or seven teams, and he made final visits. He really enjoyed um, the city. He saw, the obviously, the arena in the summer when it was all uh, torn apart. Uh, he uh, had a great visit uh, with uh, Patrick Alvin, with Emily, uh, with Jim, uh, obviously with a former coach. Uh, and uh, he just felt very welcomed and at home. And... Uh, I know you guys are church talking the Vancouver Canucks and management and all that, but I mean, look, the the senior management, including now some of the guys on the coaching staff, have won two Stanley Cups with Pittsburgh Penguins uh, in uh, you know only what five seven years ago. So you guys should be excited. There is good stuff uh, that uh, will be happening, and uh, you got to be patient. I mean, those championship teams, you got to go through a lot of uh, troubles in order to win the Stanley Cup. Dan, I just want to compliment you on your Twitter feed. We've been enjoying it. We've had a lot of laughs. 
Um, how much fun has it been for you over the course of the past week, uh, well, week especially, uh, as this contract sort of uh, reached the finish line to, to be having the sort of fun you were having in the wake of the Chicago game, for example, earlier this week? Well, guys, look, I'm unemployed. If you love what you do, you'll never work another day in your life. And so I've been unemployed just sitting here and having a good time with the rest of the guys. I'm in this business not because I have to. I'm in this business because I love the game and I love the business side of the game. And so, uh, unfortunately, as much as I want to respond to some of the fans, I can't. But I do read most of the comments. And if I can have a little fun, uh, I would certainly do that uh, every single day because uh, being an agent is not as glorious as people think. Uh, and if you could have a little fun while doing your job, then uh, that's what I do. Well, we're glad you do because it's fun for us and we enjoy talking to you as well, Dan. We're talking to Dan Milstein, Andre Kuzmenko's agent, CEO of Gold Star Hockey. So it's, it's a two-year deal. What was attractive to you and your client about a relatively short-term deal? Uh, well, we uh, obviously, we've been talking to Vancouver uh, well ever since Andre got there. There has been a week that we haven't had any conversations. And uh, when we got together uh, last week in Florida uh, for a meeting, uh, we uh, both sides agreed that the two year made the most sense. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, in two years, Andre is going to be only 29 years old. Uh, in two years, the salary cap uh, would go up uh, from 82 and a half to as much as 90 to 100 million dollars. And uh, Andre would have a sample of, uh, you know, a cu- couple of hundred games or so, and uh, he'll be able to um, to make uh, to, to make a, a, a decision and sign a long term extension. Uh, at that point in time, being only 29 years old. So uh, this deal made the most sense, uh, and then we'll just go at it hard, uh, hopefully uh, July 1 of next year, and uh, take it from there. Dan, uh, I'm going to ask you to indulge me here, because ever since the flat cap came into existence, I've had this pet theory that some NHL player is going to be the NHL version of Timofey Mozgov, who was the NBA center who signed in the wake of the TV deal creating um, you know, a huge jump in the upper limit of the NBA salary cap. The contract had almost no relationship with the market that had governed deals before it. Uh, sticker shock was heard across North America, and I've always thought timing out um, how, when the cap explodes in the wake of the U.S. broadcast rights deal and the end of the flat cap era, there's going to be some player who really resets the market um, how conscious are agents of that, not just in Kuzmenko's term, but uh, are we going to see more of the two- and three-year deals, perhaps, as we go through this summer? Is, is this the sort of thinking that's on um, you know, the, the top of minds across the industry at the moment? Well, well guys, it really depends. Look, look, I've done long-term deals for Mikhail Sergachev. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an eight-year deal. Uh, Nikita Kucherov, that was an eight-year deal. Andrei Vasilevsky was an eight-year deal. For Ilya Mikheyev, on the other hand, the strategy was to do a four-year deal uh, instead of five-year deal. The reason behind that deal was that uh, uh, it would expire at the age of 31 and he'll have an opportunity to sign yet another multi-year deal uh, at the time. And uh, uh, look, my, here's my strategy. It's got to make – the contracts got to make sense for both sides. This isn't a one-way street. Should never be a one one way street because look, I see some of the crazy contracts and the guys are becoming the victims of their own deals. Mm. So um, and then also with proper financial planning put in place, they'll never spend the, the, some of those you know fifty to a hundred million dollar contracts. Guys would never spend those money ever in their lifetime. And if you play your cards right, if you play your cards right, 
you'll never the, the the funds would go would be passed down to a hundred generations after you go, and so um, it, the deal is gonna make sense for both sides. Look, I don't want to be the, known as that agent who who basically wins every single time. If it's about you know, of course, signing a big contract, uh, pounding your chest and saying, look, look at me, like look at the deal I got from my client, and things don't go well, and then your client becomes become becomes a scapegoat for every single issue that the franchise has. I don't want that for my guys because mm. it's difficult. We obviously try to win and try to be extremely reasonable and go for the biggest uh, contract possible. But with that said, we always understand that there is a salary cap. There are other guys on the, on the team. Look, when Nikita Kucherov won his uh, first Stanley Cup, people were saying, well, he's er- er- only earning $9.5 million. He could have been $11 million. You know, from Edmonton, one of the first phone calls or, uh, that Nikita made was to me. And it was a thank you for the contract because because doing nine and a half million dollar deal I have left some money on a table for Tampa Bay to, to sign a third line uh, that the, the basically some of those guys were the difference makers mm. between the prior years and struggles that Tampa Bay had and so I'd rather get that call than get a call from a general manager saying hey we're gonna buy out the client <laughs> for sure uh, Dan can you give us a sense of what besides the fresh sushi has so appealed to Andre in his first season and what's made his transition so seamless because we're all seeing the results on the ice. Well, I mean, we were obviously looking at the team, looking at the roster, looking at, uh, at, the, at coaching, at the management. We were looking at multiple different things. This wasn't just one of those, uh, uh, you know, we're going to go to whomever gives us the most money. Right, so we were obviously looking for the opportunity, but also we're looking at the city, at the, the, the how passionate the fans are, and uh, and uh, and so uh, by the time it was all said and done, uh, there was no doubt in my mind. And Andres, his parents, some of the guys have worked with me here at Goldstar Hockey. Uh, it just, it just like it. All the signs were pointing at uh, at Vancouver. And to be honest with you, and this is this is a story I don't believe it's been told in the past. Maybe it has, uh, but. Uh, after a visit to Vancouver, we flew to uh, to Michigan. Uh, to I'm sorry, to to Miami, and we were on on my boat with an Ilya Mikheyev at the time, uh, uh, soon to be free agent, going between Toronto and uh, hitting the free agency. And Andre spoke with him. At, uh, so we had uh, I had Andre and I had uh, Ilya and his wife on my on my boat, and we were talking about uh, you know the teams he's visited, and he was. Uh, he basically laid out uh, pros and cons for every team. And Ilya, not even knowing that Vancouver was going to be in his uh, near future, uh, after listening to him, saying he said, uh, you know, uh, if I was me, I'd go to Vancouver. And sure enough, uh, four weeks later, Ilya signs with the same club. <laughs> so, Dan, I mean, that's a great point that you, you know, it's not just Andre Kuzmenko that you have here in Vancouver. You have Ilya Mikheyev and, of course, Danila Klimovich in Abbotsford as well. And I know you've talked about the positive relationship you have uh, with the Canucks organization, what has helped to develop that positive working relationship between you and the team? Well, obviously, I've worked with those guys when they were in Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, you know, you, I can always call 24-7 the lens for the phone call. Uh, and uh, I value people that are that, that are straight up, uh, and they, they tell you, they give you the information, whether it's good, bad, and ugly. You know, they, they don't hide behind the phones. We have a great working relationship. Sometimes we love each other. Sometimes we hate each other. But that's the, you know, we're on the opposite side of the fence. I mean, that's, that's a normal thing. But with that said, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we, we handle this as business people. We, and, um, 
and and I can always count and on them. Just like I hope that they can say the same thing about me. Dan, we really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, one of our listeners texts in, Dan Milstein may be the greatest, most honest agent I've ever heard. So the, the listeners are loving it. And, uh, hey, we get to keep talking to you for at least a few more years here with so many of your clients awesome. and, in town. And you know what? Let's, let's, let's uh, continue having fun on Twitter. Sometimes I can't say some things, but, uh, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll try to have as much fun with you all and celebrate uh, my client's uh, uh, greatest moments. Well, we'll keep bringing the humor, and I think I think Canucks Twitter might make you an honorary member of the community. So that's high. That's a that's high praise. That's like being knighted online in the city. Uh, you know what? There are so many so many knives in my back right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's but, but fantastic! Bring Just bring it on, my friend. Wow, oh. Dan, we really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Have a great day. Oh, awesome! Man. Thanks, guys. Uh. Bye. That the, is a killer Photoshop joke. Dan Let's go. Milstein, Andre wow. Kuzmenko's agent, the CEO of Gold Star wow. Hockey. Everyone texting in. Uh, Dan is the GOAT agent. Uh, Milstein is the best. Can the Canucks hire him as a capologist? Well, Just people are raving about Dan Milstein. So before we go for break, okay, one thing about Dan Milstein is the service level offered to his clients is through the roof. I'm not going to advertise for the guy, but. Well, you, get, you get boat trips on it, out of it. <laughs> Uh, and a what lot, a scene he set there. And a lot it. more than that, you know, especially because he represents so many Russian players, immigration issues, on and on. It can be extremely complicated. It was extremely complicated during the pandemic. And the service that Gold Star traditionally offers to its clients, like having worked with some players like um, Bogdan Kisalevich, who, who transitioned uh, and were represented by Dan, um, you know, their level of involvement with me, even as a PR guy, was like through the roof. Rare. Yeah. And you can tell the time he makes for the media always as well. And the, the openness yeah. and the honesty and the directness. And the skills he shows at Photoshop. I mean, <laughs> the guy's unbelievable. <laughs> Lots to get into there from Dan Milstein. Uh, you know, I thought it was interesting that he wasn't even looking ahead to two years down the road, right? Because obviously... Andre Kuzmenko will be eligible to sign another extension like in just over a year from now, next July 1st. And that was the timeline uh, that Dan Milstein referenced. Like, let's get at it. Let's get after it as soon as he's eligible. So he's already looking down the road at that next extension. Who knows uh, what what will happen there? But I thought that was really interesting. Uh, we got a packed show today, man. Uh, next, the top prospect game was in Langley. You were there. So was our next guest, Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. We'll get his takeaways uh, from what he saw from Connor Bedard. And others uh, keep texting in 650-650. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance on an extremely busy day. For the Vancouver Canucks, we're coming to you live from the Kintech Studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We'll get back into the Andre Kuzmenko extension, what that means for the Canucks, what that means for Bo Horvat going forward. I do want to touch on the game last night as well at some point. But uh, right now, uh, we will turn our attention to the prospect world and specifically what went down at the Langley Event Center last night with the CHL top prospect game uh, from The Athletic. Does a great job covering prospects in the NHL draft. He is Scott Wheeler joining us now. Scott, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? 
I'm doing well. I'm just standing in the airport waiting for my flight, which is on time. Wow. Uh, to head back to Toronto. Here. Congratulations. Sorry, do we have uh, breaking you. news music that uh, that a flight <laughs> to uh, to YYZ is on time? We uh... <laughs> Incredible. Well, hey, Scott, first of all, hope you enjoyed your time on the West Coast. It was great seeing you last night. Yeah. What, it was a oddly low-scoring game for a CHL Top Prospects game, right? And yet... It felt to me like there were a bunch of standout performances from some players, particularly defensemen that hadn't previously been on my radar. With all that we've heard about the 2023 draft class and how loaded it is, do you think we got a sense of that at all from the performances on the ice? Uh, Interestingly enough, probably not. I actually thought it was a really competitive game, but because the goalies played so well, and maybe that was part of the storyline, was that Scott Ratzlaff and... Carson Bjarnason are, are legit. Bjarnason's like awesome. I don't know anything about goaltending, but he was sick. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're both projected kind of second-round guys in this draft. There probably won't be a first-round goalie in this draft. And, uh, yeah, they both played well. So maybe that was part of it. Obviously, Connor scoring or not scoring, as, as was the case last night for the first time uh, since the gold medal game at the World Juniors and before that since his season opener. Uh, that was a bit of a storyline. And then there were other sort of top players that I actually thought were kind of quiet. I didn't see much outside of that first goal that Colby Barlow and Braden Yeager created on the power play where uh, Barlow sort of redirected it and then finished finished his own rebound. I thought both of those guys on Team White's top line were, were very, very quiet in the aftermath of that. So really the the big names, especially because Andrew Cristal, another one of those names, wasn't wasn't playing in the game due to injury. The big games weren't really the storyline. I thought the storyline was Luca Pinelli and and sort of some of the second round picks. You talked about the defensemen. I thought Tanner Molendick was really really good last night. Yeah, so, he's he's on my uh, my guy list yeah, now. Unfortunately, yeah, that guy's yeah. that guy's a my guy now. Hundred percent, I've claimed it. And, and he uh, he grew. They they measured everybody yesterday, uh, and he grew about an inch and a half. He was listed at. 510 by NHL Central scouting prior and he was one of the kids who shot up to 511 and a half and I think he's pretty strong too he's like already 180 190 pounds kind of thing so uh, a big weekend in more ways than one for Tanner for sure <laughs> and, and a big weekend for our listeners who now get to hear me talk about Tanner Molendyke for weeks on end. Anyway, uh, you mentioned Connor Bedard. You know, it does. It didn't turn into the kind of Connor Bedard spectacle that we might have expected it to. Doesn't get on the score sheet, but I did see a lot of people reacting to just kind of the feistiness and the competitiveness and the willingness to mix it up and be mm-hmm. physical, even in that setting. Right, like a, ultimately, what is an exhibition all-star type game? I mean, not that Connor Bedard needs to do anything to improve his standing in the eyes of NHL scouts but you know what does that do for teams looking at him just to see that you know even in that kind of setting he still brings that type of competitiveness I think really dating all the way back to last April at U18 Worlds in Germany that's become a a huge staple of his game it was a really really rough team for Team Canada at U18 Worlds as is often the case because of the CHL playoffs and the fact that they basically only get to draw from five or six DHL teams to put that team together. Uh, and he was just so competitive and feisty and chip on his shoulder and engaged in everything after the whistle at that tournament. That has really spilled right through two more world juniors, right through his play in Regina. Uh, and I'm doing a, we're doing a big, big, that it will be a, released eventually a sort of big uh, poll of, of WHL general managers and coaches and players about Connor. And one of the things that's been most common in the conversations with those folks over the last couple of weeks 
has just been that competitiveness that he's he's strong that he'll knock people over that he'll uh, he he's not going to back down from anything so I think that will be a, a huge determining factor in whether or not he sticks at center in the NHL I really do believe that's the only question that remains for Connor it's not is he going to be a star or even potentially superstar player anymore I think that ship has sailed and NHL scouts are all kind of in agreement that he's going to be one of the most talented, most high sort of powered offensive players in the league. And now the only question is, will he be that as a winger or will he be that as a center? And I think he knew that because he's five foot nine point seven five, as his new listing says, uh, that he he's going to have to be competitive. He's going to have to be in the battle. He's going to have to sort of hold his ground uh, in puck battles. And, and he does that. So that's a testament to, to him and how strong he is. Uh, I think we can all see it on the ice. He's a very strong kid, despite that listed height, uh, really strong lower body in particular and protects pucks so well and uh, all of that. So that's going to be interesting next year. I really do think that's going to be the storyline of his rookie season. Whichever team drafts him is likely to play him at both positions and then make a make a determination. I'm sure our listeners expect me to turn the conversation to Zach Benson, but I want to ask about Colby Barlow, who, first of all, plays the game like he's going on 28, not 18, and m- might look like he's going on 28 rather than 18, um, but seemed to be one of the standouts and looks like a guy who's maybe got a shot at challenging for for a top 10 spot here uh what did you think of his performance was it typical of what you've seen from him in the o over the course of the yeah season? interesting with colby barrow right because he's got the beard he's got that sort of aaron ekblad look to him uh certainly aaron ekblad had that when he was 15 and colby barlow's got that when he's 17 18 looks here. like a hip dad uh, yeah, but there, there was a shot of the, the team photo where Brent Seabrook was the head coach and they made the mistake of sitting Brent Seabrook right next to Colby Barlow in the team photo. And you would not be able to tell which one is the 40-something three-time Stanley Cup champion and which one is playing in the game. And that's just because he's so physically mature. And I think there are often actually questions about that. Teams actually, most teams view that as a little bit of a detriment because it suggests that there's not a lot of runway uh, for him in, in relative to some of these other kids. Uh, but it's also the defining quality of his game is just how strong he is, how hard he shoots it, how hard he works. Uh, I kind of hinted at it off the top, but I actually thought that he was kind of quiet last night. He scored mm. uh, early on, uh, sort of a redirect in front, and then finished his own rebound. But he was playing on a line with, with Cohen Zemer and uh, Braden Yeager, who are two other projected first-round picks, and I expected that line to really control play, and I thought that they were overshadowed by some of the other players in the game, including Zach Benson, who you mentioned there. So I uh, didn't think, I mean, he, he was the captain of the team that won, so it's hard to be too uh, picky with, with that outcome for him, uh, but I didn't think he personally was, uh, was a standout outside of the, the goal he scored at the top of the crease. The... Benson factor I'm curious to ask you about because it felt like the crystal absence was kind of noticed it felt like they struggled to really find like a third guy for that line and yet the way that Benson and Bedard who obviously played against each other and with one another growing up uh, their ability to just establish off the cycle and, and cut through the neutral zone stood out all night was it a good outing for Benson even though he only gets sort of the late goal and that line didn't produce yeah, I thought he was fabulous. I thought he was that team's best player. Yeah. Uh, I know they named Riley Height as the player of the game, and Riley hit. Well, a he tried of the Michigan. And, 
tried the Michigan and had a, had an assist and had some looks and was physical and all of that. He it was sort of a classic Riley Height game as well. But I thought Benson was all around it. I thought he, frankly, I, Connor was better than his minus two and no goals on six touch on goal suggested. But I thought Benson was the one who was really making plays last night. He was all around it. He's such a hard worker. He mm-hmm. skates so well. Uh, and despite the fact that he's five foot nine as well, another smaller, high skill guy in this draft, uh, you never notice it with him. A, a guy who is just universally respected around the WHL and around scouting communities for how hard he works, for playing sort of above his weight class, uh, and that's just sort of competitiveness, feistiness that he has. So uh, that, on top of a very, very unique skill set as a playmaker and handler of the puck, and uh, I think he's going to be a, a stud. He's really outside of the big four in this draft class, might be my favorite prospect. Him and, and the NTDP's Will Smith are going to be 5-6 on my midseason list in a couple of weeks. And uh, those two guys, I think, are, are are pretty darn good consolation prizes. So I think the world of, of Benson, I think he's going to be a potential star in the NHL. Yeah, the consolation prize who's on pace to outproduce Ryan Nugent Hopkins while being a superior two-way player in his first-time draft eligible season, not too shabby. Uh, Scott, one other thing I sort of come away from that game with was, you know, especially because the draft class is so forward-heavy at the top, I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about or looking about uh, looking at uh, the defensemen in this draft class to this point mm. in the season. I, you know, with where the Canucks are going, I'll, I'll spend the next few months sort of uh, cramming for that. But, you know, between Etienne Morin, uh, Cam York, um, uh, Molendyke, uh, I thought I thought the defensive talent on display in terms of two-way ability, puck moving ability, intelligence, overall hockey intelligence uh, on display was was pretty high. Um, looks like it's going to be a pretty decent draft for finding some some interesting CHL puck movers. You know, latter half of the first round, early part of the second round. Is that consistent with how you're shaping up this draft class, or is this a Drance? Don't 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 read too much into the CHL top prospects game. No, I, I think you're bang on there. Last night, the, there were a lot of second-round pick defensemen playing in that game. That's mm-hmm. what this, this draft class in terms of D in the CHL is defined by. There's a lot of sort of five foot eleven, six foot, six foot one kids. Not small kids, but not big kids either. And the, they all play similar styles. They can really handle the puck. There are, were a lot of very good skaters out there, which is a big deal when you're that size. You need to be able to move. And some of those kids are just so smooth. Even, even Bo Aki, uh, he got walked on, uh, on a one-on-one sequence with Carson Raykopf uh, about midway through the game there. But he's a really sort of balanced positional skater. And Caden Price, you go down the list. So uh, I thought Molendyke was really good. Uh, I thought Etienne Morin was good. Um, even Luca Cagnoni, who's on the smaller side, he's a five foot nine defender who was undrafted into the WHL and played forward growing up before switching to defense. Uh, he plays for the Portland Winterhawks, and they have a real chance to to win the WHL title this year. And uh, he's he's their offensive defenseman and their power play quarterback, but he also plays big big minutes on one of the best teams in junior hockey. And uh, he's turned some heads this year as a sort of five foot nine puck mover who might be might have a chance to make it as kind of a second or third round pick. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good group that way. They're really, uh, as as you guys well know, there isn't likely to be a top 10 pick uh, as a defenseman this year in the entire draft. That will be the first time in 20-plus years that that has happened at the draft. 
but the, the, the conversation kind of starts after that. Who's going to go in the teens? Who's going to go in the 20s? And who are kind of the, the early second round guys? And I think there were several candidates from that group last night that kind of fit into that mold. Hey, Scott, just before we let you go, I wanted to ask you also about uh, the Canucks prospect system. And, you know, you're in the middle of doing your uh, your rankings for all the NHL teams' prospect pools. Mm-hmm. No surprise to see the Canucks at number 28. That'll be uh, familiar to a lot of Canucks fans. But I did want to ask you specifically about uh, Jacob Truscott, who's, who's second in your list of uh, Canucks prospects in the system. And I feel like he's a guy who's maybe not on the radar of a lot of fans. What do you mm. see in the player? And, you know, as a junior this year at the University of Michigan, it seems like he could be a guy who's potentially in line to get a pro contract. Does he have that look as somebody who could, you know, step into the AHL and, and perform next season? Yeah, definitely. Maybe not step into the AHL and, and sort of be a top guy next season, but I think you can expect him to potentially sign. I still think there's a chance that he goes back for for a fourth year. Uh, but if he does sign, I think you're, what you're hoping for is just a two-way type who can establish himself as a top-four guy in the AHL within a year or two and then work his way into the call-up conversation. He was never a star prospect growing up, but he has always been a very good player who was well-liked by his coaches on good teams. He played at the National Development Program. He's played in the shadow of Owen Power and Luke Hughes uh, at the University of Michigan and just a really quietly efficient sort of two-way type who moves the puck, always has his head up, defends reasonably well, a smart player, doesn't sort of cost you with mistakes or anything like that. So uh, I'm a fan. He was I, he was higher on my draft board than where he was picked and uh, has kind of progressed steadily since then. So uh, a kid in a pool that, as you mentioned, is pretty poor. It was actually kind of funny. The, the early prospect pools, I tend to get criticism from those fans as fate would have it. And then as, as we progress through to number one, suddenly I'm a, I'm a soothsayer, right? So, <laughs> uh, but with, with the Canucks pool, it, it was the reverse. There were actually, uh, I remember the comment section for that piece was just filled with people saying, I can't believe we're this high. So it uh, just goes to show you the psyche of where the, the Vancouver Canucks fan base is at these days, because I think they were 28th or 29th, yeah. and there were fans thinking they'd be lower. So uh, it's, a, it's a pretty thin group. Aiden McDonough, there's uncertainty uh, he wasn't featured because he's 23, and it's a, my my rankings are U23. But Aiden McDonough, who would have been one of the top names on that list if he if he was a year younger, uh, there's uncertainty even about him signing in Vancouver out of Northeastern, and he's a real star on a Northeastern team that's kind of struggling this year. So, uh, yeah, just not uh, not a lot coming in terms of the prospect pool. They've got work to do to rebuild it. Uh, I love that anecdote about the fans being surprised they weren't lower than that. That's fantastic, Scott. They, they, they just hear me do my checklist too much, Jamie. <laughs> yes, they, they've listened to our show enough to know. <laughs> uh, Scott, really appreciate the time. Safe travels back east, and uh, hopefully we can chat again soon. Thanks for joining us, bud. Yep, cheers, guys. Cheers. Uh, that is Scott Wheeler. Does a fantastic job covering the draft and NHL prospects at The Athletic. And, yeah, that really does uh, capture the psyche of Canucks. It does remind me of, um, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the uh, – Dave Mahler from uh, Sports Radio down in Seattle tried to like rip into Canucks fans as they were getting as the Canucks were getting bludgeoned by the Kraken last night, right? And like, oh, get used to it. It's going to be a lot of pain for you guys coming up. As if he was really and, like poking the and eye. Can- and Canucks fans are like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we know you're not breaking news C- to us. Canucks here, buddy. fans literally just doing the bane. Like we were born in the darkness. <laughs> like <laughs> I think he was not prepared for what he was going to get in response to that. A lot of agreement. A lot of like, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> That's fabulous. Thought I was really sticking it to him. Nope, not so much. Um, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Text Line. As said, a lot going on today. In particular, 
uh, Andre Kuzmenko signing a two-year 5.5 million AAV contract <laughs> extension, which we should also point out, according to Elliot Friedman, uh, comes with a 12-team no-trade protection. Don't know exactly the details on that, but that was reported by Elliot Friedman. Uh, so there were some people asking. I think Reg texted in, please tell me it doesn't have any no-trade protection. Sorry, modified. Sorry, sorry to modified let you down, Reg. No Not full, but modified no-trade and, protection. And 12-team no trade protection when you're making 5.5 is no trade protection. It's it, it's powerful, very powerful. Like cuz at the end of the day, at the end of the day there's just so few teams that are able to eat money in the system and even with the cap going are, up over the next 2 years, realistically we're probably in for like a minor lift this summer, probably more than the 1 million we've become used to cuz the the PA and the NHL will negotiate for it, but at this time if you're sort of projecting the Canucks cap sheet out, I wouldn't count on more than one. Be pleasantly surprised if you get more than one. You know, that's how teams typically think about it or should. Um, and then the next year, you probably get a, a bigger lift, provided, you know, that we avoid the, a recession for another calendar year. Um, so, I mean, we'll we'll sort of see where this goes. But really, 12-team no-trade list, it, you know, you can wield that to be a full team, full no-trade list. Yeah, and I mean, you never know the details on like when they submit it and the process and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, right? usually at the start of a league yeah, year so and, and in in writing, and you just p- sort of pick the teams you expect to have. Would be possibly interested and able to do it. You, yeah, right? you just pick the teams that, have, that you expect to have cap space, and you're basically pretty much set. Yeah. Uh, this text comes in. So signing Kuzmenko means Horvat is gone 100%. That one's unsigned. And then this one comes in from Burad and Burnaby, who says, doesn't signing Kuzmenko today not only make it known for sure that Horvat is gone, but signal to potential buyers that the Canucks now have to trade him, which is now putting the team in a weaker position, possibly lowering the return. So there's two things there, right? One, I mean, we've <laughs> that's, heard... That's not a bad take. We've heard the reporting that... Uh, it was a one or the other proposition, right, for the Canucks in the Canucks' eyes that it was they had to choose between Andre Kuzmenko sure. and Bo Horvat. So if that is an accurate, and I have no reason to doubt that it is uh, accurate reflection of their thinking, this would certainly seem to uh, seal the fate of Bo Horvat. The thing about hurting how, their how, leverage. Also, how many times can you poke a guy in the eye? That's the thing. You right? know, like at some point, you know, at some point you just and and look, remember this, right? Like it's worth. In the event that the Canucks come to Bo Horvat and make a third offer, and then it's like three offers have been made, and Bo Horvat doesn't want to be here, you know, I mean, to sign JT Miller and then Kuzmenko before you get to Bo is tough. By the way, I just want to touch on that too. For a team whose stated goal is to turn it around quickly, I, I'm never going to understand extending Kuzmenko but not extending Bo Horvat. Yeah, that like. Yeah, if your goal is to make the playoffs in the next two years. That's one of the worst things about this is, like, not only is the plan bad, but it's incoherent on its own twisted logic. (laughs) And then if your plan is to be good as quickly as possible, Bo Horvat's the guy you keep. He plays the premium position. He's roughly the same age. He wins a ton of draws. He's this team's captain. He's the best in this locker room at navigating all the pressures that come in this market. I mean, you know, in, in some ways, if you... If you extend JT Miller and choose him over Bo and then extend Kuzmenko and as a result find ways to dump Besser and Garland, like you've kind of gotten older and arguably lowered the work rate of a team whose work rate can't (laughs) seem to get much lower. That for me is like, how do you compute that? How do you square that? Well, and And, and people will say, because Miller and Kuzmenko are better at scoring. You know, like. There's, 
This team can score. That's not the issue. Does scoring lead to wins? Not necessarily. It, it can if you do a bunch of other things well, too. Outscoring leads to wins. Yeah. That's the fundamental truth, right? You, you can't just look at a hockey card and determine how good a player is. Uh, <laughs> 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And just to the Bo Horvat point, I don't... I, I see the point about leverage, but I think that's also the kind of thing that, like, if there's three teams involved... I think that does that more than cancels out any leverage you you lose as a result of signing Kuzmenko here. I wouldn't have been surprised if they'd kind of waited on this until there was a Horvat trade in place just for that reason. But I don't think it seriously damages their ability to get a return on Bo Horvat. I will say I think now, like the rubber's really hitting the road with Bo Horvat and a trade here. And now's the time to get serious. Now's the time to get out ahead of it and act like you are trading. Bo Horvat, and hey, I know people are very, very worried about, are they going to start sitting him out? You've got one more game tomorrow before a week off. At this point, with the tea leaves reading how they are, I think there's a strong case to be made for sitting Bo Horvat out tomorrow against Columbus. I think that's a good take. Like, if you're this committed <laughs> well, you to trading him, days you're, lo- you're locking yourself in, yeah. And it's, okay. it's just one game, and look, I know hockey players are competitive. I'm sure Horvat would not be thrilled. He wants to be out there. He wants to be scoring, right, to get, get those numbers up. But you got to protect yourself. And, and and again, I don't think you can take a a passive approach to Bo Horvat now, right? If, if you're locked into that path, you have to be urgent with it. Okay, so there's a lot there's a lot to unpack here, and I know we got to go to break. So I'm just going to note something that was pointed out to me by, um, you know, a smart hockey guy that I chat with sometimes. And, you know, one thing they suggested was to watch to see if Miller moves back to the wing. Right? Watch to move back to see if Miller moves back to the wing here. Because, you know, I think you make a strong case for sitting Horvat. I think that would be a sensible thing for the club to do, at least tomorrow. Right? Like, tomorrow gives you 10 days where you're completely risk-free in terms of the, the health of the asset, uh, at, which at this point you have to consider Bo Horvat as for the next five weeks, which sucks to say because he's done so much for this franchise. And so I think that's a strong case, but I don't think you can sit him for like a month. Like that's no. not going to work. No, so, so, but that's what I mean. Like you got to get serious about getting this deal done. But there's an alternate sort of thing to watch for here, which is JT Miller was second lowest among all Canucks skaters in ice time yesterday. Only Jack Stadnika played more. Jack Stadnika may be an early favorite for being the trending down usage under Rick Tockett guy, based on what we've seen the last two games. If Miller moves back to the wing, that's going to speak volumes because, you know, this organization is looking for the sorts of pieces in a Bo Horvat trade that other teams, particularly contenders that would value him as a rental, are going to be deeply reluctant to part with. So how does this play out if you're a passive organization, right? Which clearly they are, based on how we've seen all of these situations play out. And the fact that they've, like, retained Kuzmenko and Miller despite promising major surgery. You don't get the ask you want. Your coach decides that JT Miller's a winger, which he is, right? You talk yourself into, well, we aren't getting the offers we want, partly because our demands don't make sense. And so we can't lose him for nothing. You make one last offer that actually could get it done as opposed to being, you know, one last sort of perfunctory try in part for the public messaging aspect of it. Horvat stays in Vancouver. I'm not saying that's how it's going to play out, but I think Miller moving back to wing in Tockett's early days 
is now going to be a tell that I am watching for very, very closely. Like reading the man here, that to me will speak volumes. If we see Miller go back to the wing, I'm going to start to wonder if this doesn't in fact end with uh, the Bo Horvat trade that today, from today's vantage point, and overall, like I've since December, I've said this is going to end with a Bo Horvat trade. Mm-hmm. Miller moving to the wing would give me pause, serious pause for the first time. I think the important thing to remember, and I've been somebody who's been hedging on the possibility of a Bo Horvat trade, this does move the needle towards a trade for me. Not that I'm saying it's done, done. I, it, this is the most confident I've ever felt that he's been traded. I do think it's important, though, to keep in mind that it's not its not as if it's a mathematic impossibility to retain him, though, now, right? Like, it's unwise, but it was unwise anyways. But it still is possible. It's not, oh, well, we couldn't possibly sign him. We don't have the cap space to sign him. They do. They just have to make some other painful moves. And, hey, we've heard Jim Rutherford talk about the potential of buyouts. So there is still a path, as unwise as it would be. I, I'm leaning more towards trade now than I have been in the past, but you make a good point. We'll see where it goes over the next month and change. Uh, up next, our guy, a day earlier in the week today, Dmitry Filipovich from the Hockey PDO cast will join us in studio. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strands here. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintec.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Kalen or Callen in Saskatoon texts in simply, this is so depressing. <laughs> Welcome to Connects Thank Hour. you. Thanks, buddy. We appreciate it. I'm actually having a great time. We had a great interview with Dan Milstein today. Oh, Mil- that Milstein was fun. Burst that was super energy. entertaining. Speaking of bursts of energy, yes. we're joined by Dmitry Filipovich. <gasps> uh, our guy, normally on Fridays, accommodating us on a different day today, which I uh, really appreciate. Well, and we have to do something different this week because the... There's no games next week. I don't know if you... And we can't do a whole PDO report on what to look for at All-Star Weekend. So, Dimitri's going to join us. And I figured we'd do a draft right off the hop and just make the whole segment a draft. And I was thinking we could do a snake draft of Canucks storylines for the rest of the year. What we're watching for from this team Mm -hmm. over the rest of the year. Straining the idea of a draft even for us. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Just putting these, a, these are the dog days. I, sorry, I, I wanted to make a draft that I would win. There's, there's never been Although, a, hey, my 49ers pick's looking decent. There has never been a squarer peg in a rounder <laughs> circle in this concept, in a rounder hole in this concept. Sorry, we cover the Vancouver Canucks. What are you talking about? Uh, can I go first? Yeah. All right, so Canucks storylines for the remainder of the year. So, number one off the bat, because I think he is the most important player in the franchise, it's got to be Elias Patterson. And I'll say specifically the Elias Pettersson, Rick Tockett working relationship. As mm. the as the Elias Pettersson extension talks loom in the summer, so much of what we talk about is dependent on getting him locked up, him being around, him being a superstar player for years to come with this team. How does the new coaching hire impact where that is going? That's my number one pick. I, I think that's a really good number one pick, pick for sure. Uh, a strong number one pick, and I don't think it's the right number one pick, but uh, well, but I think I, it's a good one. Well, sorry, but I want to discuss this. I want to unpack this really quickly okay, because it. there's this line of argument going around that's like the Canucks had to extend Kuzmenko 
to keep Elias Pettersson happy. Mm. But the thing about that is you're either all in on keeping a guy happy or it's not an argument you can use to justify XYZ move arbitrarily, right? So it's like the Canucks just fired a coach who Pettersson we know had a great working relationship with, like was very close with. So, um, you know, how does that square? Like left hand's doing something, the right hand's doing something else. Like two of Pettersson's close friends on the team have been in the AHL for the last six weeks. Like you're, you're either all in on we're going to do everything possible to keep Pedersen happy, or you're not. And the idea, too, that a guy's going to make a $90 million career decision based off of their relationship or partnership with a guy they met four months ago doesn't make sense to me. Like, this is one of the worst arguments going around in a city, often awash in them at the moment. You know what I think will keep Elias Pedersen happier long-term? What? Playing for an organization that has some sort of a plan and isn't just stumbling around aimlessly in the dark every single year. It's never fun to stumble around in the dark. Yeah, Keeps, hit your I think shins. I think that'll help. I think I think but, I think that should be their game plan. That's a hot take. Come on, get real, Dimitri. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Fa- yeah. Fantasy land. All right. Here's my here's my first pick. Okay. Second overall. The 102. Rick Tockett trying to get through to JT Miller. Yeah. I I love this storyline so much because. So much of the Rick talk at higher and the logic behind it has been predicated around getting in there, not waiting till the summer because they want to evaluate what they have. And part of that is getting some better habits, practicing, getting them, getting everyone playing the Rick talk at way. And that's under the assumption that this is a young team that is still malleable in that capacity. And which is so hilarious to me thinking that Rick talk is going to come in and all of a sudden change 29-year-old JT Miller's way he's been playing all along after he already got paid. So I love this storyline. It's something that I don't think we've heard the last of and I think is going to continue for the rest of the season. The whole idea of, okay, change the habits. Look, I have no problem with that. Like, yeah, sure, we can all see how this team plays. There obviously needs to be major changes in the way that they play. But it's also, you know, you're looking at it, and especially with Hoaglander Pod Coles and not on the roster right now, like, who are they planning to keep around long-term? Like, let's say Rick Tockett breaks through and connects with Tyler Myers and dramatically changes Tyler Myers' game. It's like, well, great. Are you <laughs> where, are you extending him? No. You know what I mean? So it's like, okay, you can change the games of some of these guys, but is that actually going to matter in the long-term? And again, that's not to say that there's no significance to it, but I think this idea of, like, he's going to dramatically change the habits of these players specifically, so many of them are not going to be here. When this team is ready to win again. I, like, I think highly of Rick Tockett f- from what I've seen to this point. And yet, I consider Miller's career trajectory. And, you know, he came up with John Tortorella, Alain Vigneault, John Cooper, mm. you know, now Green, Boudreaux, Tockett. I mean, it's not like, it's not like Rick Tockett's a coach unlike anything JT Miller's ever seen. He's worked with some of the most successful bench bosses the last 25 years in this league. The idea that Tockett's the guy who gets through to him. It's, you know, I'm not saying he's not even going to be that. It's just the argument feels completely incredulous when you consider the track record of people who've worked with JT Miller. I'm going to deputize my third overall pick to Chet from Burnaby because I love Chet and also because this is so funny. He says, I'm going to draft. Who gets in Tockett's doghouse and how badly does that mess up the Canucks? <laughs> and and I just like this one because there is a cost. I've often said this. There's a cost to making a coaching change that you sometimes can't anticipate. And let me give you an example. When the Canucks changed from Travis Green to Bruce Boudreaux and their results spiked, 
one player who lost a lot of sheen was Niels Hoaglander, right? Obviously, Travis Green had a, a million years for Hoaglander's relentless work ethic, was willing to allow him to make some of the defensive and, and puck management mistakes that Hoaglander would make occasionally. And so Green kept playing him and often kept playing him in the top six. And for Bruce Boudreau, Hoaglander was like the constant first guy out, was like the most frequent scapegoat on this team. They just viewed the player differently, and that changed his usage and ultimately his value massively. This happens. Inevitably, coaches are going to have different opinions of guys. Some guys will trend up. Some guys will trend down. Their usage fundamentally gets altered. So I think Chet's bringing up an interesting point because we still don't know what way Tockett's going to lean on any number of Canucks players, several of whom, you know, you'd think the organization would love to see him work with to rehabilitate their value given, you know, how few options this team has to make moves this offseason. So I'm I, I, Chet, Chet and Burnaby is making our, our honorary third pick on my behalf. Now, great, great comment from Chet. Mm-hmm. Are we not allowed to use the word that he said instead of messed up on this? On oh, the I don't know. I'm just like oh, okay. so low risk. Okay. okay. Um, no, we can't. Okay. Because well, I'm like, I feel like I've said that on the video cast before. I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty cautious, but I would say that one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, the word he used was screw. <laughs> yeah. I think <sighs> it's fine. I think that's... that's <laughs> wow, you did it. Watch your mouth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, anyway. Um, here's my fourth pick, mm. and I'm going back to the JT Miller wall. Yep. JT Miller at center, to me, is everything for this team now. Like... The Kuzmenko deal, we know, makes it very likely that Bo Horvat gets moved, even mm-hmm. more likely than it was before, and it was already overwhelmingly likely. Uh, Chris Faber points out on Twitter that this new administration has now handed out over $105 million worth of contracts to wingers, depending on where you slot JT Miller's $56 million in total salary. They now, If you count JT Miller as a winger, they now have five wingers set to make at least $4.75 million next year. And if you do the math, you can only play four wingers well, in the top six. But but then you add Tanner Pearson. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, who knows where that's that one's going, sadly, right? And then you add Pod Colson, and then you add Hoaglander. And it's just like, at some point, you need a body of the plane to, to, for it to fly. You can't just have eight wings. This, is, this isn't you like... need a fuselage. Yeah. At, the, at this point, the Canucks are the like old John Madden turkey. <laughs> you know, like 18 drumsticks. Just wings for days. So, I mean, to me, JT Miller at center for two reasons is sort of like everything for the Canucks. One is they're so overweight in terms of their investment on the wings. Two is if they move him back to the wing. If Rick Tockett decides ultimately that he views JT Miller as a winger long term, which like I, I hate to ruin the suspense, but he's going to. Um, but but if he does that and does does it in the next couple weeks, what does that telegraph in terms of what this organization will actually be willing to do with Bo Horvat? That to me is going to be fascinating to watch unfold. I love it. Well, reading all these uh, listener texts, I think my next pick has to be the status of Garland and Besser as assets because there seems to be a lot of thinking that these are positive assets that the Canucks can get something for. I'm curious for your take, Tom, mm-hmm. and you as well, well, Jamie. If if either guy was placed on waivers today, they'd both clear. They would. They would not. You be would claimed. think so. Now, I I have heard Frank Saravelli report that there's some sort of interest in Besser. Now, interest 
at what cost, at like how much retained, giving money back, all of that. But Besser at least sounds plausible that there's a path to it. Garland, no. Well, I think the Besser is, I think they're both plausible if you take money back. Yeah. Like that's the, that's the thing, right? Like that's why the waiver bar is so interesting is like the reason they both clear is teams can't afford to just like put them for free on their roster. They'd need to send money out to make the deal work. So could they be movable by the deadline? Yes. Oh, if no the Canucks, chance. if the Canucks take money back by the deadline, I don't think so. Uh, I think right. It's too hard. I, in I, no, I, I think, think Besser. Yes. No Gar- Garland. No. I, I see. I think in both cases, if you're solving a big enough problem for your trade partner in terms of what you're taking back, it's feasible. Here's what I think. I think much more realistically, the plan should have been let's use the rest of the season to rehabilitate any value either those guys have by putting them in premium scoring roles and yeah. doing everything we can to manufacture empty calorie points for them. Totally. That's something, Getting, by the way, that this team is great at. Clearing Kuzmenko off the depth chart via trade and allowing them to do that would have been yeah. a very logical move, which is something to consider as well with the issue of re-signing him here instead of trading. Well, and this is a point I've made a lot of times too, where the Besser compromise made the most sense in a world where the club was also trading JT Miller because mm-hmm. it opened up that spot, you know, on his one-timer side on PP1, and then you're talking about a totally different world of production most likely. Just just an opportunity bump, right? N- Najee Harris points for Brock Besser. Yeah, and the Besser just in Besser in general is really interesting to me. I know uh, Cam Sharon had a good piece at The Athletic today, today yeah. kind of exploring what's going on and like there has been a really significant decline in performance from Brock Besser. And I mean, is that just it? Is is this the player we're looking at now? Like that's a fascinating open-ended question to me, even beyond the, you know, can they get him those empty calorie points to raise his value? Like what's the true level of performance you can expect from Brock Besser going forward? I don't know the answer to that. That's a, that's a big deal uh, for the Canucks going forward. Okay. It's back to me. I can't believe we haven't uh, done this one already, but what does the return look like if and when they trade Bo Horvat? Or I guess I'll just say what the resolution to Bo- the Bo Horvat situation is. Is there still a sliver of chance they sign him? If they do trade him, what does it look like? There's so many reasons to be concerned about the, you know, they're asking for th- three roster players or two roster players and a prospect type of thing that we're hearing. The one that really stands out to me is if you're so concerned about clearing up cap space, well, if you're acquiring like a 23 or a 24 year old who's any good they're not cheap they're not, or at least they're they're going to get more expensive in the yeah, near they're future not cheap for long right they're like, not cheap even, for long even if they even are Bear. cheap even Ethan bear is going to be pricey on his next deal so it's the kind of thing where you're like well we have to trade bo horvat because we don't have the salary cap space but i mean like, like what if you trade him for somebody making four million and somebody making two million like that, you've almost taken up the just, whole his whole cap hit. Just say Roslovic and Peak. Roslovic and Peak. Yeah, that might have been who was on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, <laughs> yeah. that's like the official Canucks talk. Bad yeah. Bo Horvat. Well, you know we did really the uh, we did the exercise right where I like sorted the you know what and was they like, were both centers, on the list centers between twenty two and twenty five who are. Uh, Un- making under five million and like sort by cap it and like Roslovic number one. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. There's Here a reason we, we picked him. There's but a yeah, what what uh, what happens with Horvat and specifically what the return is? I think is going to be fascinating and tell us a lot about where this is headed. The stakes for that that might be the highest from from a Canucks management perspective. That might be the highest stakes order of business remaining over the balance of the season because, you know, not that like the first blush reaction 
I think is going to be determinative of how their tenure turns out, but I think the fan base is so fed up with the organization overall that they're in a really tough spot. It's going to be a very hard trade to win in terms of how the news cycle reacts to it, and yet these are the sorts of trades where the bar is actually pretty low in terms of what you actually need to return to win the deal. Like, Benino, Spiza, and a late first for Bo- uh, Ryan Kessler is actually a huge win for the Canucks, so long as you don't trade McCann for Goodbranson and, and Benino for Sutter. You know, Cliff Poo in a second for Jeff Skinner looks like a terrible loss on paper, but the Carolina Hurricanes make out like bandits when you compare the Sabres sinking that money in. Trocheck to the Carolina Hurricanes, a disaster trade on its face, but because the Panthers did creative stuff with the cap space, ends up being a win. It, it's it's one of those that's like tricky to win in terms of public perception, which is tough for an organization that desperately needs a win right now. I really, I don't think, I agree. I disagree, actually. Okay. Because I optically, I think the only people that would be like upset about a Horvat trade, like, okay, so there's two scenarios, right? One is entirely futures. It's prospects and picks. Yeah. Which is what I think we're in agreement they should do. Yeah. So the people that would be upset by that are the people who would want them to prioritize younger roster players. Right. But the people who think that way are going to be diehard fans of this team that support them blindly no matter what. <laughs> right. And so they're not going to be upset about futures and draft picks no because what. if the messaging from the team is, we think this is in our best interest, they'll support them because that's what they've been doing this entire time under Jim Benning. Under well, Jim that would be a good reason to do smart things. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> to, your, to your point, Dimitri. Yeah, take I advantage mean, of their trust. Yeah. You can scoff at, you know, getting pick 25 or whatever, but as soon as they pick a guy at 25, people are going to be like, I'm super invested in this exactly. player. I'm oh, really excited about what he can bring to the team. That, and I'm not saying that as a criticism. That's natural. That's part of what being a fan is all about. Like, yeah. you'll get invested in those futures in a hurry. Absolutely. If they go that route. All right. I'm going to uh, uh, take you know, just recklessly steal from the inbox as well. This one comes in from Rager for my second pick here, or third pick, I guess. He says, sneaky draft pick will be who is the Bo Horvat replacement for the main player scrum after games, and is that person seen as the captain in waiting? Two games in, Rick Tockett directly calling out the leadership group last night mm. after that mess of a game in Seattle. Bo Horvat, not the only part of that leadership group, but he, did, but he is the captain. He does do a lot of the speaking to the media, and... You can look at it and say, well, Elias Pettersson is the obvious next captain. I think that's fair. Like, yes, he's going to be the best player on the team. That's what it should be. But is he ready to fill that role that Rager's talking about? The guy who's constantly out there in the media. So that part of it, but also just, like, who steps up? What what does the new leadership group look like? What is that leadership style? That is soon, We're going to learn more about it next season, but Rager's right. If Bo Horvat goes, we're going to get kind of a, a dress rehearsal at it for the end of this year, too. Yeah, it'd be nice if the answer to that question was someone who was on the books for seven seasons after this one. I don't think it is, though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't um, think it is. No. I'm, 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 I'm out of draft picks. You, you have nothing else I got you're all interested in seeing? I mean, I think we're already stretching the definition of, like, interesting and... <laughs> Okay, well, I got... As the uh, premise for this draft. Uh, so you're going to pass. You know what? I'm, I'm, I, might, I might make a pick after you. This I'm is not. like the end of the Major League Baseball draft, yeah. where they keep going until everyone passes. I'm going to wait for you to make a mistake, you're, and then I'm going to uh, clean up the mess. You've basically just drafted Taro Sujimoto. Yes. And and we're moving on. Yeah. Um, all right, ready? I want to know how the Canucks perform. In the greatest tank battle the Ooh. hockey world has seen since 2015. How low can they go? 
and more importantly, am I right? <laughs> that they're going to get on not a, not a heater heater, but at least a mini heater here and finish something like I think I I legitimately like would bet the over on eighty two five for a final points haul. So Tom and I I'll take the under. Tom and I had this debate in the car on our way back from the top prospects game last while, night while listening to Satin Bick, by the way, and and laughing so hard at the at the. The Rick talk. Will you will you tell? Because you got to hear me uh, see it live. But will you tell our audience my reaction to the oh Rick talk and availability? So I was driving. Tom sitting beside me pulls up Halford's Twitter timeline, who had transcribed the entire yeah. thing, and is just reading it word for word, just cackling. I couldn't believe it. I was just stunned. It was amazing. It was, am- <laughs> it was truly, a, truly amazing. Um, did you hold on? Did you see the video going around Twitter? You remember the old commercial for oh, the yeah. Stanley Cup oh, playoffs? Yeah. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Um, so Tom is big time believing there's going to be a bounce back here in terms of dead cat bounce with a new coach and they're going to take advantage of the soft schedule. My pushback to that is a lot of teams that are playing the Canucks in the next 40 games are citing them as a reason why they have a soft schedule themselves. So I, I, I really think other than the Blackhawks, I would believe that any they have, game is a toss up. They have the Ducks a bunch of times too. Sure. The Ducks, the Ducks are talented. I know they've been horrible. I know. I know. I know. The Canucks are better than that. But even you look at Columbus tomorrow, and it's like, well, they have, like, guys. They have real they just players. Oilers. Chicago doesn't. I mean, Chicago has Patrick Kane, but that's about it. I mean, Goudreau, KJ, and Lion A shooting on Canucks goaltenders at the moment doesn't exactly f- inspire confidence, but I still think the Canucks will beat the Columbus Blue Jackets going away tomorrow. So here's the thing, though, and we might get into this more. And in the our, Arizona Coyotes. Like, in our the Arizona final segment. Coyotes are brutal. Sure, but they they also have to play still real teams. And, like, yeah, you can get some wins, but just beating all the bad teams doesn't get you to 82 points. But how many games? I mean, they have, what, 34 games remaining? Yeah. 34 games remaining, and and 16 of them. It's Or, sorry, 15 of those 34 are against bottom eight teams in the league. Like, they're going to get at least, in my opinion, 22 points from those 16 games. So, you you know, you get 22 points there. And then you only need an additional what twenty two from the other eighteen. Like I think they're going to. That's do it. hard though. That's hard for them against like playoff teams. Twenty two points. Twenty two points in eighteen games is not that. Tom, hard. they have forty one points in forty eight games. <laughs> yeah, I understand. For this team it is. I understand. No, the thing I is, don't think it is. I, I honestly like at the end of the day, twenty two points. Um, sorry, uh, twenty two points out of thirty six is not. Like a torrid pace, guys. You, you're being unnecessarily optimistic about the, this team. Am I? Yeah. I it's, don't think so. Um, but here's the thing, and we maybe we'll get into this in the final segment. I guess Rick Tockett availability. It's nothing. I still think 82-5. I, I, I still think that We've seen how quickly the bottom can fall out of this team when the vibes are even like slightly off. Like, are the vibes? How much better is Rick Tockett going to make the vibes? If he's in, like, tough guy, I'm going to show you what's what mood, right? That could shift. I think I think this season could get away more than it already has in a hurry from the Canucks, even with the schedule. Because, again, the schedule doesn't really ease up until March. Like, February, they have hard games. They still got Boston. They still got Toronto. They got to go out east. You know what I mean? Like, they could go on a real bad run in February, potentially. I, I Once Demko's back, I think things will stabilize. So he's going to steal some games. He's going to be... Demko like at least much more Demko like than he was in the opening part of the season, and I think they're gonna I think they're gonna finish eighty two five points. I think that we're gonna see them compete at like a an eighty eight point pace over the balance and 
and get to uh, uh, pretty high watermark. We might end on this uh, text, which says, uh, Drance is being more positive than Dan Riccio. <laughs> How many points does Riccio think they're going to finish with? Probably not 82. Well, you know, I, I mean... Riccio's just too busy trying to figure out how to defend the Kuzmenko contract. So <laughs> I don't even I don't even think this is on his radar. All right, we will end on that <laughs> note. Uh, six fifty, six fifty. Uh, thanks to Dimitri Filippo, which that was fun. The draft made no sense, but I enjoyed the conversation. Nah, that was, great. That so was one of our better ones yet. I, I think I agree. We did it. I don't know who won, but <laughs> well, yeah. Sorry, guys. The only thing that's certain whenever we draft is that I lost. We're gonna have to make that's true. We're gonna have to make uh, Lena like go through every draft and just completely subjectively and arbitrarily decide who won. Well, I'm very excited about the Super Bowl one because you guys thought I lost that draft, but the Niners, baby. Yeah, the Niners. True. Well, okay, but we all have one team left. Yeah, or somebody must have two teams. Somebody must. Who got the Bengals? You Wasn't did. me. No, I yeah. took the Chiefs and the Bills. You oh, got I the Bengals. Bengals. I had yeah. the Bengals and the, and the Eagles. Eagles. Oh, so, yeah. wow. I'm looking so, Dimitri, great. so even in this one, you're not winning. <laughs> no, but winning. I'm going to win when the Niners win the Super Bowl. <laughs> okay. That's the point. All right. Anyways, final segment of the show coming up. Uh, keep listening. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. When I say I'm more positive than Drance, I mean uh, pretty much everybody is more positive than Drance on this roster. I don't think you should have to trade everyone on the team <laughs> to set it on a better path. Um, I still think JT Miller is a great player, and I'm not ready to say his contract is a complete and utter albatross because of a tough half season that he's had. Also, I'm giving an NHL executive with three Stanley Cup rings a longer leash than one year. What a world! There is our guy, Dan Riccio on Canucks Central, responding to, uh, I mean, you didn't, I wouldn't say it was criticism. No. From you? Maybe, maybe a little bit. It wasn't. Uh, you, guys, okay. you guys disagree right now on where the team is. That's fine. I don't even know that we do. I don't feel like those are arguments that I tend to make. You know, JT Miller's contract is an albatross because he's struggled for half a season. JT Miller's contract would be an albatross regardless of if he'd played to the same level as he did last season. Like, that's how deals that last till a guy's 37 work. <laughs> you know, like, that would be a hard contract to move even if he was playing really well. So, I don't feel like that's an argument to make. I, I, do, the, I do the patience for Jim Rutherford thing here and there, don't I? You have, less so recently. Well, at some point, they've got to begin to show proof of concept. Like, you don't just get patience while making mistake after mistake. That's not how it works. I, you know, I, I'd extend them a ton of patience if at any point they just started making moves that made sense and were, and were coherent even with the plan that the organization is saying, right? Like, I, I can't compute doing a Kuzmenko deal instead of a Bo Horvat deal, like in favor of a Bo Horvat deal in a world where you want to be better quickly. And I think you should have traded both if you actually want to build a team that can win the Stanley Cup and then, you know, at this at some point this decade. So, I don't know. I just don't I feel like I don't feel like those were my arguments he was rebutting. We should um we might have to do like a host swap situation at some point. Or yeah, and it's I, a I, good I, thing to do. And I don't say that just because I'd get to work with Sat. <laughs> but I think it would you, be entertaining. Do you think you win that trade? <laughs> ah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no. you'd have to talk no, no, more no. Uh, that's true um, that's true uh, 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line in the, in, the, in the host swap do I get to work with Jamie Dunn <laughs> yeah we're, look, we're trying to find that guy 
I'm looking forward to it. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We're coming to you live from the Kintech Studio. Final segment of the show, and we have not talked about the game that the Canucks played yesterday in which they got absolutely throttled 6-1. They lose against the Seattle Kraken, their first time losing Sorry, to the Kraken. We haven't talked about that game yet? No, not really. Wow. Like, only in passing. I mean, we started off Kuzmenko, we had Milstein, we had Wheeler, we had Dimitri. And who says the Canucks can't time the announcement of their news? That's perfect. Well done. Took it it right out of, like, our show rundown, basically, until now. Um, That was was a tough watch, man. That was, for my money, and I'm pretty sure you're on the same page, the worst performance of the season. Well, I think objectively it was. Like, objectively, that was the most lopsided game that the Vancouver Canucks have played in this season. Either way, to be totally honest with you, uh, but certainly in terms of a, of a loss, um, they were Im- abysmal. Yeah. I mean, they were outchanced 35-12, to 12, five on five. Um, that's outrageous. Like, that's hard... Sorry, 33 to 9. Oof, 33 yeah. to 9, even worse. Uh yeah, there's no game in which they've been beneath 25% share of scoring chances in a single game this season until yesterday. They also uh only recorded nine scoring chances in total on the game at 5 on yeah. 5. That's only three high danger chances to 14 for Seattle. That's ugly, man. It was really really bad and I mean, we've seen the Canucks play bad games uh, off a lot under Travis Green, under Bruce Boudreaux, now under Rick Tockett. I think one of the things that stood out to me was, you know, so often, well, first of all, when Thatcher Demko has been healthy, so often he's bailed them out and made it look not as bad as it actually is based on what the skaters are doing. That was even worse than, like, just about anything. And so often, even if the rest of the team is playing something like that, the Elias Pettersson line is winning their minutes, right? And so that at least stems the bleeding a little bit um, from what the rest of the team is doing from a, an overall perspective. But the Pedersen line was really bad. They 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 got dominated last night. They got worked by the Annie Gord line. So there was really, like, no bright spot whatsoever. They got absolutely dominated by the Kraken. And, you know, the thing is, you can say, like, oh, it's a back-to-back. I mean, they had two days off right before it. It's the shortest trip possible. Like, if that's what happens with a little bit of fatigue into your game, that is so much more alarming uh, than, you know, just, oh, well, they were a little bit fatigued and that, and so they lost. Like, it can't immediately collapse into that just because you're playing on a back-to-back. And so, look, that's the game. The most interesting thing, though, I think was, and we touched on it a little bit with uh, Dimitri in the last second. Okay, it was the 20th most lobsided game in the NHL this season. Okay, so in the, terms of scoring chance, in terms of scoring chance yeah. differential, and it was the ninth most lopsided game of the season in the entire NHL in terms of high danger scoring chance differential. Woo. So like the Canucks generated nothing. The fact that they got a goal off honestly probably their only high quality chance of the game, like that Curtis Lazar's chance was probably yeah. the only time. Like I guess Ilya Mikheyev had that one like rush backhand. Do you want well, to, I wouldn't even count that as a high danger chance. Our uh, our, our friend Allison Lucan, I just saw it, retweeted a like a shot chart from the game of where Seattle's attempts were from oh, yeah, and I where mean, the Canucks attempts were from, and like there may as well have been a force field in the in the home plate area for the Canucks. It was so ugly, and so I mean, 
the they had no chances at all, and the chances that the Kraken had were like to a shift, and they were glorious, like high danger. The, I mean, and they weren't just from dangerous areas. They were like after dissecting the Canucks with like three cross ice passes well, to get the, the goalie moving. The Jared McCann goal, where you go cross seam twice, right? And it's not just it's like cross seam with a backhand sauce, and then a sauce back cross seam that's deflected expertly by Eberly, landing on McCann's. Like what? This that's the worst thing. Like I don't think you can look at a goal in that game and say that any of them were soft in fact spencer martin stopped what like four breakaways Mm -hmm. come on and people want to blame that like people throw a term around recently for spencer martin like ahl goaltender and it's like guys spencer martin's not an nhl starter but considering his track record overall since he came up to this team like i don't know how we can say that that's what he's shown you know, like he hasn't been good enough this season, but man, the environment that he's in. The the Tolvanen goal is the one that stands out to me because there's a ton of lethal puck movement and the shot comes from a little bit far out. Mm. But like Ekman Larson is right in Martin's crease, taking his eyes. Like this Canucks defense is the best I've ever seen at taking goalie's eyes without having any chance of ever interfering with the with the shot itself. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like, I legitimately think between Delia and Martin, this team has got NHL-level goaltending in a brutal environment. Not good NHL-level goaltending, but, like, passable NHL-level goaltending. The fact that this team is last in the NHL by save percentage, when you look at the chances that they've surrendered all season long, when you look at the absolute fire wagon that is Vancouver's defensive structure, I mean, it is truly not... Just on the goalies. And if you are one of those people who's like, well, if they could get a save, like you are bending over backwards to excuse one of the most permissive defensive teams I've ever had the displeasure of watching. And, and, you know, as I think about last night in particular, what really bothers me is like it's schedule loss and the Kraken are better than the Canucks. But it's like it's a schedule loss. But again, it's not like, oh, this is the end of a long road trip, third and four. Like it's a mild schedule disadvantage. Okay. It's not a lot of travel. It's it's a schedule disadvantage, no doubt. Well, I was saying that as context for the carving I was about to do. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be Riccio here. The fact is though, is there's a grim trend for this team where the Canucks play in these games, and it's hard to say that they don't look checked out. You know, like, when JT Miller, two minutes into the game, is just getting absolutely crushed in a battle down low with Ryan Donato. Like, I like Ryan Donato. But JT Miller shouldn't be losing a battle that soundly down low. You know, it's not like you beat him off the rush, or... Like, he just flat lost a down low battle. And then those mistakes just kept compounding. It's not like I'm not even singling out Miller. I don't think it's like he set the tone. I'm like all over the ice. Yeah. Every single loose puck was a crack in puck. It, it it was like every possible mistake. It was like the lost battles. There were so many just passes that were off in oh. the skates, out of reach, bobbled if they were on target. Like every possible little thing you could do poorly, they did last night. The, the Kraken can attack as a team with a ton of speed. And the Canucks just never manufacture anything off the rush. Like, they're so hapless at using one another 
to attack. It is unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. And, you know, the fact is, is that we've seen this team play like this so often, right? And, oh, the maddening inconsistent, all this stuff, right? And it's like, first of all, they're just not that good. But talk it, getting a look at it for the first time. And you could just tell he was just like, what? Like, yeah. He was like befuddled. He yeah. was he was shocked. He was shocked. He had a he he honestly had a strong and honest emotional reaction to the performance. He sounded like which is very understandable, by the way. Like it's it was an appalling performance. It was an appalling performance. It was not. And a their pro- coach was appalled. It was not a professional level performance. Well, and so now we're on to the third head coach who's watched this team from up close play like this with disturbing regularity, and just that exasperation, right? The speechlessness, like. It was the first time we've seen it from talk, but we've seen it from Bruce. We've seen it from Travis Green, you know, and and all in 14 months, all in a 14 month span. The interesting thing, though, is I, you know, so you remember, especially in the last couple of years of Travis Green's tenure, Canucks lost a lot of games. And I remember listening to the postgame show and and reading the text message inbox. There was always this like, is this going to be the night that Travis comes out and rips these guys? And he never did. No, never did. Tactically, that was a decision he made. I feel like Rick Tockett, and I'm not saying this is a, a value judgment on either one's decision, but I thought it was striking. I think Rick Tockett was more critical in public in his second game than Travis Green was at any point in his Prob- entire tenure Probably here. until like the last couple weeks. Yeah, until that's fair. Until maybe you the know? last couple weeks where it started to loosen up a little. But yeah, I mean, you know what? I think that's a fair point because Green would try to boost this team when they were fragile and crush this team or at least like um, limit them from getting too high. When they played well, right? Like when the Canucks played well, you didn't want to ask Travis about like Quinn Hughes. Wow, what a player, right? He wouldn't give you the like, oh man, hmm. ever, right? Like he tried to keep this team level. That was sort of his approach. I, I think you know what? That's a really good point. Yeah, and so I, I thought it was really striking that Rick Tockett just, and maybe it was because it was such an emotional, visceral reaction. Like he yeah. almost wasn't even thinking tactically. You know what I mean? But and the other interesting thing is. I understand where Green was coming from with that approach, but you could also tell that it it wore thin on the fan base, right? There was this desire for this kind of public accountability of the players from the coach. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the difficult position that Rick Tockett is coming into with this team. There was, there's been no, like, how dare this guy say that about our team kind of reaction. If anything, he's going to endear himself to the fans talking this way. Like, there's a there's an appetite to hear this about the team and that's I'm, I'm really fascinated to see where this goes now I mean we, we talked about it a little bit with Dimitri I mean like how much can he really change the habits of a guy like a JT Miller like a guy like a Tyler Myers but what does that process of accountability look like under Rick Tockett I think I think we're gonna get a chance to find out pretty soon here because I mean when you're calling the team soft saying nobody wants the puck. Like, those are really, really harsh criticisms. That's going to have to be backed up. That can't just be empty talk. It's going to have to be backed up to justify why Tockett's here. He's got to do something, follow through with that, uh, follow through on that with actions as well. And, I mean, hey, JT Miller only played, what, 10 minutes of uh, of five-on-five ice time last night? I'm not saying it has to be a JT Miller because everyone was poor last night, but if that's how he's talking after game two behind the bench... I'm really curious to see how that translates into into action from Talkit for the rest of the way. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. And and what I tried to point out in my column contrasting the hopeful path illuminated for the Canucks and Langley if they were only willing to take it, mm-hmm. which they're not. And the sameness. Right? The the unsettling way that this club performs now and the hopelessness that this market is consumed by in following this team's actions under new management and seeing so little in terms of a change in direction and seeing so little in terms of a long-term plan that, you know, is, is convincing, is compelling, that, that makes people want to sign up and be part of the journey, like buy in on the ground floor. Cause this is, you know, like who's got a long position on the Canucks in this market. Everyone's shorting this team. Mm. That's a problem, right? You don't need to ha- show an, um, immediate results. But you need to at least be able to sell, invest, and this will be worth it, right? That that's where that's fundamentally what this organization needs to be able to do. And as they rack up these performances, like in addition to everything else, everything else we've brought up over the course of the season, right? The defense too reliant on their goalie, right? Like the contracts, the lack of prospects, like the the, the checklist, but also all the other things we talk about from a hockey perspective. They're just not good enough. Like, one of the reasons that I struggle with seeing how this team can be turned around quickly is the efforts like that and the persistence of the efforts like that under multiple coaches. You know, it was one thing to be like, well, you know, the bubble, it's hard. The organization cut the budget. They're really missing Tanev's leadership, on and on, right? And then the organization goes out and they spend a ton. They spend a ton. They a luxuriously staffed um, <laughs> um, farm system, mm. right? Like on and on, and then and then people are like, they've checked out on Travis Green. They've checked out. It's the coach. They've checked out on Travis Green, and then Boudreaux comes in and see they just checked out on Trap. Look at them with it, and then the season begins, and it's like, oh, Boudreaux, man, like how did this repeat? Like at some point, I don't know if this group has it. They don't. I don't know that they have it to like outwork an opponent in game 68 the way you have to if you're going to win 45 games in this league and be a playoff team, be even a fringe playoff team. Like It takes a level of buy-in. It takes a, a level of, you know, the organization might call it professional standards, but like pride, basic pride to come together and be more than the sum of their parts. Like at what point has this group shown the ability to do that? Like I'm out on that. That's what frustrates me so much about the lack of change, right? And and this isn't to steer the conversation back to Kuzmenko, but it's just like, how can anyone have the appetite for more of this? And the, the, the other surprising thing about that is, again, I mean, we heard from Rick talking again already, second night, second game, about the leadership group, his concerns about the leadership group, right? We've heard similar things from management. They seem to have a similar opinion about the kind of the will to win and the professionalism and the standards and the pride that you do, Drancer. And yet we saw just another example today of them locking in more high-priced players on this team. And so is it is the idea that like Bo Horvat in and of itself, trading Bo Horvat will have this remarkable effect on the culture of the team? Like is that because at this point, what are the other plausible interpretations of what they've done? Wow. And if that's the idea, I mean I'm not buying it. No, I'm not buying it at all. And, and and actually, I'd add this. There's a segment of the the most positive Canucks fans 
who are like going through the process of mentally breaking up with Bo Horvat as as this team's captain. And so over the course of the year, you've seen this supposedly positive and fair segment of the fan base begin to throw like these barbs at Bo Horvat, right? So it's like things like there was the stat chaser narrative, mm. which is preposterous considering how much better he is as a two-way player than any other center on this roster. And then recently, I don't know if you saw this on uh, on, on various online spaces, there was like clips of Dakota Joshua gets uh, cross-checked into the goalie after he scores. Bo Horvat's standing there, doesn't respond. People are like, whoa, whoa, that's not leadership. And it's like, you're not going to fight a guy after you've you've just scored to take the lead. It's a one-goal game. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> the goalie's injured and the puck's in the net. That's not like a moment for you to take a swing at Max Domi. You know? You think Joshua wants that? He just he suckered Domi into 17 minutes worth of penalties like three shifts earlier. Stop it. Stop. Well, not three shifts earlier. But, you know, three shifts for Domi. He's got to <laughs> sit out 17 minutes. I, I, I can't stand, like, this organization's made their decision on Bo. There's clearly a leadership vacuum in terms of how this team performs. When you don't give Bo an extension, you also strip his effectiveness av- as a leader. Period. Like, come on, we all know how this works. How much How much authority does your boss have on his last week of work versus the guy who they've brought in to replace him? Who are you listening to in that last week? Yep. You've all been in that situation in your work life. Come on. Just just ridiculous. Like, they've made their decision on Bo, I think. Maybe not. But I think they have. And we don't need to throw or shoot arrows at a guy who's, through some of the leanest years, conducted himself with class and clearly done everything you could have asked a star player to do it during some of this franchise's most depressing seasons. And just the, ludicrous. the thing is, we've got 90 seconds here. The thing is, at this point, trading Horvat is the only way to make good on any of your publicly stated goals and any of your publicly stated opinions about this team, right? Like, that the team needs major surgery, that you need to get uh, more young players and more prospects and more picks, that the leadership group is in question. Like, the only... If you sign Bo Horvat you're you're jettisoning doing at taking action on any of those things right it's the only path left and it's not significant enough on the major surgery on that but like it's the only credible option you have left to fulfill any of those very publicly and repeatedly stated goals if you don't do that at least i mean what what are we even talking about at that point so well we're talking about the canucks (laughs) that's true i mean the canucks love to narrow their path and then step as opposed to being comfortable enough with uncertainty and ambiguity to play the probabilities and give them as many possible routes to improving their team. That's basically baked into the MO of this franchise going back a decade. It's been a dark decade, and I'd love to find a reason to take a long position on this team at some point before I'm 40. That's my hope. Chet and Burnaby says, this team is so off the rails, Drance is citing intangibles like pride and heart. How can you not?! We will leave it on that note. We'll be back for the final show of the week tomorrow. Keep listening here. Sportsnet 650.